So we continue and pick it up with a slightly different angle. I'll do a refresh in a moment, but let's, let's just start with Psalm 37. Verse 1. Fret is such a cool word. I mean, it's a horrible experience, but it, I don't know about it. There's something in the English word fret that actually sounds like feels like, says like, you know, it's, it's, it's not like a word like onomatopoeia. Or, you know, it's, 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 it's almost feels the word, you know. Do not fret because of those who are evil. Do not be envious of those who do wrong because like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green Plants, they will soon die away. If you're not going to do that, what are you going to do? Trust in the Lord and do good. You can live in the land and enjoy safe pastures. Take delight. Notice the direction of your heart. Take delight in the Lord he will give you the desires of your heart. We all know that he cheats. Because you think, okay, as long as I really like God, he'll give me my Ferrari. And then after a while, you go, God, I love you. And then you look at the Ferrari and you go, I really don't need that if you don't want me to have that. And your desires actually change. So it's not that he just gives you the desires of your heart. He gives you the desires in your heart. Like as you delight in him, the things that are born inside of you begin to change. So commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. He's going to do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. Your vindication or your justification like the noonday sun. So be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. Sounds like he's a, got a point he's trying to make here. It only leads to evil. And those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Evil will be destroyed. Those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. I know that takes faith, but hey, you're in church. Find it and just say thank you, God. But it is. There's a, there's a place of pressing in, and we, we, we're going to work a bit to be in the space where this is not just true for an hour on a Sunday morning, but actually is what we are carrying wherever we go. So we were looking at this. Sorry, quickly go back there. We describe repentance and forgiveness as a two-lever lock, and it's a spring-loaded lock, and if you turn one and you pull the door, it's not going to come. 
And you let go of that and you grab the other and you just pull that one. So you're turning repentance, turning repentance, or you're turning forgiveness, turning forgiveness. I'm trying to stop, you know. It's actually life change and transformation is actually a two-lever lock. You've got to turn both springs at the same time. It's so seldom in our lives that there's actually only a single cause to the problem. Even when someone's really messed up, there's probably something that you've become complicit in along the way. And so you don't break the power just by letting that go. So we spoke a lot about some of uh, this dynamic of getting the door to our freedom to open by turning both. And so we saw that um, repentance unlocks forgiveness. And so when we turn to God in repentance, we should, we must. It's what Jesus died for, to receive our own sense of forgiveness and freedom. God doesn't want us accused anymore. Your, uh, um, Your judgment is past tense. Remember, we saw that at communion last week. And then forgiveness parallels repentance. And we'll come to that in a moment. I'll give you the the graphic for that. And then I told you a story from my own life of how forgiving someone else had actually enabled me to enter into my own repentance. For things I was very complicit in, stuck in, trapped by, Repenting again and again of the same old, same old held no power until I closed the access point in my life, which was an offense against me. And so my own repentance gets unlocked by forgiving the person who first sinned against me. And, um, and so we saw this process in the repentance journey first. We've got to recognize, confess, and name the stuff. Then we repent of it. And then we meant to receive our forgiveness like we really do. Now, we'll step into community in, in, in the process, but it doesn't help us if I'm walking around feeling guilty and shame. Guilt and shame does not keep you from sin. It is the manure in which more sin will grow, guaranteed. God would not want to cleanse your conscience if guilt was health, healthy. Um, and so... But then we have to recognize the lies, the emotions, the habits, the addictions, the structures that have come. And we need to say to those things in our lives, get out, get out, rebuke you, resist you. Whether you want to use the language of James chapter 4 or the language of Jesus, you know, I love the word for setting someone free in the Bible. It's called ekbalo, which means to chuck out. Uh, We get the word bore. And ek is ex, so you're literally picking up something and you're throwing it out. That's how graceful deliverance is. Just chuck it out, rebuke it, kick it out, get rid of it. And then consciously recognize what God wants to give you in its place. And then lastly comes restitution, where the true fruit, uh, John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. We put wrongs right. The gospel isn't just the gospel of forgiveness. It's the gospel of the recreation and the reconciliation of all things. And so, yes, the cross is instrumental in making things new. But until things are made new, we haven't finished its work. So simply saying, I'm forgiven and I'm kicking back and 
don't brim and bring all that stuff on me. No, no, there's meaningful, significant conversations about putting wrongs to right if we're following Jesus. And so then we saw that forgiveness parallels repentance. And so you still got to recognize but if it's, it's an offense that was originally done against you, you're going to forgive that. There's no power in repenting of something that you need to forgive. Remember? Just as it's, it's completely powerless, in fact, even offensive, to say, I forgive something when I ought to repent. I mean, that's, that's such a manipulative move. You know, so if I say to Trevor, after I've sinned against him, Trevor, I forgive you. Are we good? Like, what is that? That's like diabolical. I'm, I'm layering even more into the offense and causing even more harm by saying, I forgive you. I can't forgive what I need to repent. But there's no grace, no power in repenting of something that you first need to forgive. It's just as distorted in the kingdom of heaven as the other way around. It's a false humility to think that I can repent out of something I first need to forgive. It's a key, key uh, aha moment. And I know for a lot of you, you spoke to me afterwards. And apart from being concerned for me in my individual capacity, um, you, that thought, you were processing that thought. So, of course, restitution is never the basis or cause of our forgiveness. That's Jesus on the cross. But it is the evidence, the test. If I say, oh, great, God's forgiven me, but I still keep running away with my stolen car, I ain't repented. Okay, so last week, I promised them, sorry. And then you go through the process. Having forgiven them, you carry the will for their good, heart for God's grace in their lives, but you recognize the harm that was caused in that encounter and you tell that still, get out. Because remember, it got in. It didn't get in through your sin, it got in through theirs. Jesus describes this in Matthew 18. He talks about, especially as little ones, we get caused to sin. If anyone causes one of these little ones to sin. And so the stuff that gets in needs to get out. And so you've got to address that. And then again, what a joy to replace that and fill the house with good things. But, and if the test of repentance is restitution, then the test of, my, of forgiving is going to be the willingness to reconcile. Now that's going to be a two-way street. You cannot unilaterally reconcile the other person can't tell the story and the other person doesn't understand the harm they've done and if the other person isn't repenting. To reconcile with a person who's carrying the wrong spirit is going to reconcile you to that spirit. And we did a study on 1 Samuel 24, I think late last year or early, where, where David literally has a confrontation with Saul and, he, and you can see he's not carrying a grievance, but he is objecting to Saul's treatment at the cave. And David is not reconciled to Saul. Saul goes one way, David goes the other way. David goes, remember, to his stronghold, to his safe place. And he lives 
is that boundary of safety around him. He no longer has a relationship with Saul, but he's not bitter towards Saul. He wishes him no evil. He just wishes he would repent so they can have a healthy relationship. Now that's quite a big thing because you can't make that call unilaterally. So we want to do some more coaching in the series now is to work out when is it appropriate and how do I understand healthy uh, boundaries that do not cause harm. So I promised last week that we're going to come back to, uh, to steps number four and five. This thing of resisting, rejecting the drivers, the attachments, the hooks inside us. Um, you know, repentance often contains grief. So James chapter 4, I nearly preached the whole sermon on James chapter 4 today. Um, but then the Holy Spirit reminded me that I've only got so much time. But it's, it's a really powerful passage. James 4, by the way, starts at the absence of restitution and reconciliation. People, the, the community is broken. People are squabbling. He says, what causes fights, squabbles, all that damage and harm among you? Well, it's your own unbridled desires. You're literally living... And he, and he works his way up the other way around. He, he, he says something, for example, he says, you, you've become friends with the world. You've got wrong attachments. You've got wrong partnerships. You've got wrong alignments. That's making you an enemy of God. You're in the wrong spirit. He says, don't you know that God is jealous for the spirit in you? Like, he knows when someone's jealous, it's like you're forming a relationship that is either excluding them or causing them harm or setting them aside. And so in that passage, he's seeing our alignment with harmful spiritual forces, dynamics, and beings. And so he says, submit yourself to God. He's doing this, the, he's, he's coaching them, but he's using the process in reverse. They start with a scrap and a fight and a quarrel and broken relationships. And he says, you've got the wrong spirit. How, what do you do? Well, you're going to have to submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. He must flee from you. And then he says, and in order to do that well, you're going to have to do steps one and two. To grieve, mourn, and wail. Why? Do your emotions have to be unlocked in this process? Why is James saying, you've got to cry properly? In, in fact, you're supposed to wail. Is this just Middle Eastern, uh, you know, metaphors and idioms and idiosyncratic language? Why are the emotions so important in kicking out the devil? I mean, we, half of us in this room, schooled in proper rationalism. You know, emotions are highly suspect things that uh, you shouldn't allow a lot of airtime in your thinking and in your life. So why does he want grieving and mourning and wailing? Because grieving is God's gift to break attachments. You know, when you go through a bereavement, grieving helps you let go of what you cannot keep. When you go through repentance, grieving helps you let go of what you should not keep. Grieving is there to break the emotional, internal, soul ties. 
And it can be with a thing or with a whole lot of stuff. You know, David and Jonathan, the scripture describes how they became one in spirit. And the thing is, you can align with and become one in spirit with very unhealthy people or relationships or thoughts or ideas, and they, it literally drives you. So this is why steps four and five are so significant. Because we end up with thoughts and drivers and attachments that have completely unconscious, subliminal, immediate access to your thinking before you've even thought it. And so an impulse comes your way and you experience an emotional reaction. And it's because of who you partner with in that environment. And so your reaction tells you who you've aligned with. And it, you didn't think about it. In fact, you might think about it afterwards and go, oh my goodness, I hope no one saw my reaction. You see, it's the subconscious, unconscious, involuntary access that we've got to flush out and bring into the light so that we can work with in really healthy ways and in godly ways. And then, of course, step five is going to help us to replace that. And, of course, today is Pentecost Sunday, so I need to make the point that this can't happen without repentance and forgiveness. So Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter's coming to the climax of his explanatory sermon. I mean, there was so much going on, someone had to tell people what was going on. Um, glory. Imagine having to preach to explain rather than just motivate. And, uh, and so he comes to the climax of, of uh, the challenge, and he says, repent and become a Baptist. Sorry, that's just my theological training kicking in. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Like without exception. And you do this in the name and in the authority of Jesus the Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, when you go through this process, you will receive the gift. Of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you. And for your children. For people who are far off. For everyone who God will call. So this is going to be a little bit of a battle. And we need to recognize. Um, that there is something that's going to come against it. And I want to I just talk about this. This thing that will come against forgiveness. There's a lie that says that we need the shield of fear and a sword of anger to survive in life. We need a shield of fear and a sword of anger to survive in life. And so we're afraid to forgive because we think we're going to have to drop those weapons. Now, the truth of it is, you are going to have to drop those weapons if you're going to have something so much healthier to put in its place. You see, we think unforgiveness is a necessary defense against further pain. 
that's the lie. I will protect you as long as you keep your heart hard towards the person who sinned against you. Don't soften your heart. Don't let them go. Don't forgive. We think that unforgiveness, and here's another distorted lie, says that what they did is okay, or that unforgiveness pretends it doesn't matter. We're tempted to believe that if that if we don't forgive someone, then, then we're punishing them and they're going to suffer for the rest of their lives. And what we worry about is that unforgiveness gives them, opens us up to their influence and access. And so that we automatically, we confuse reconciliation and forgiveness. And that to forgive someone is to reconcile with them. And open yourself to their influence. Listen, you're already open to their influence. We saw that last week from the scripture. Forgiveness is dealing with that influence. Reconciliation is a separate step. Really important to understand. So back to our reading in Psalm 37. David has learned that he needs to guard his heart. He needs to keep watch over his spirit. He knows that there's something more dangerous than losing a particular conflict against a destructive person. Now, what could be more dangerous than losing a fight with a harmful person? Anyone? Close? Becoming like that person. David said at the mouth of the cave, from evil doers come evil deeds I will not spite. Saul wanted to strike him. He knew that the greatest danger was carrying the same spirit that Saul carried. Saul sought murder, Saul sought bloodshed, and David was determined to carry a different spirit to the one he sought. The greatest danger is becoming like the person you need to forgive. The biggest challenge we face is that having been opened up to this access and these lies and these emotions and behaviors, that they pull the strings in our lives as we go forward. We need to understand that fear and anger and unforgiveness tell lies. They promise you protection but it's a false protection. And we're afraid that then forgiving causes us to lose our power and our rights over someone and make us vulnerable. And so we keep a shield of fear and a sword of anger. But what we miss is that the poison, the spirit by which they live, has then become our own. And so we need to get rid of that spirit. And this means we're going to have to accept and learn healthy boundaries. You see, often we think that unforgiveness establishes a healthy boundary. 
And no, I'm not quoting half of you when you've sat in the room with me for a pastoral appointment. You all said the same thing. I need healthy boundaries. So let's talk about that. I just want to say this. Having been breached, understanding how the spiritual dynamic works, you cannot establish a healthy boundary in any relationship defined by unforgiveness. It's gone. The wrong spirit is already in. It's got his access. You do not have a healthy boundary if unforgiveness is in the room. You just have division and anger and fear. You do not have love and power and self-control. You see, healthy boundaries keep harm out while letting us connect with the goodness of those around us. So what do we sometimes have? We have unhealthy boundaries. Ambivalent boundaries in which we accept the unacceptable because unforgiveness blinds us to the fact that it is unacceptable. And so we get into toxic relationships and we think this is normal. And counselors can call this codependent and a hundred other different descriptors. But bottom line is you're accepting that which you shouldn't accept. You're letting that in which you shouldn't let in because you can't see it. And so you end up with an ambivalent boundary in which you know there's some kind of pain in this relationship, but you don't even know how to describe it. The other thing in an unhealthy boundary is boundaries are too high where we literally just push the person away. We resist the person. We put step number four on the person instead of on the lie, on the emotion, on the behavior, on the event, on the spirit that that actually opened up towards us. And so we end up fighting flesh and blood. And we, and we say, I need my boundaries. No, you don't. That boundary is just as harmful as the thing that was done to you. And it's hurting you and it's hurting them. But equally, unhealthy boundaries can be too low. We feel guilty that we're rejecting people. And so we let the chaos in. Reconcile with harm. And we think this is the way godly people do it. No, they don't. You need to be able to say no to that which is ungodly. This is step four. You've recognized it caused you pain and harm in step one. You've done the forgiveness work. You've let it go. And now you chuck it out. And if the person wants a healthy relationship, they come into a healthy relationship in which they are loved and welcomed, but in which unacceptable behavior is clear and excluded. Now, I know that's great in theory. <laughs> but it's important to see the theory. If you can't see the theory, you're really going to be messed in practice. So to go back to my own story last week, describe last week how in a hospital ward I was abused, sexually abused as a young boy. Forgiveness does not mean that I suppress or deny 
or approve of what was done to me in hospital. It was wrong. It was sin. It was, and it matters. In fact, it matters so much. It's so significant that I have to go to Jesus on the cross as Ian described and deal with it there. I go to the place of ultimate authority in heaven and on earth. That's how significant it is. And so that takes us to point number two. You see, in Jesus, on the cross, lies my true protection and my safety from harm. Can I say this, though, about unhealthy boundaries, just before I move on? We accept the unacceptable. We reject the person. We don't know how to say no. Unhealthy boundaries always point to spiritual work we need to do. You're thinking, ah, ah I've got unhealthy boundaries. This person must sort themselves out. No. Like, hopefully they do. And if you've forgiven them, you're going to be praying like crazy that you, that, that you do end up in a healthy relationship and space. But unhealthy boundaries always point to work I need to do because I'm letting it happen. Gosh, is this, is this helpful or do you just wish I'd shut up and go away right now? I want to talk to you about the Location of true protection then. You see, our true protection not lies not in a shield of fear and a sword of anger, but in replacing the spirit and the lies and finding a new attachment and connection that's life-giving. So, of course, we're going to be doing the hard work of replacing the spirit and the lies. And so, out of step one, remember, name the emotions, the controlling behaviors, the fear, the shame, the lies about God, about yourself. Recognize the sin as an enemy strategy against you. Recognize the way it could open up doors on your own path. But as you do this, something will happen, and it's what... Cain didn't do in Genesis chapter 4. He could not recognize sin crouching at the door. As you do this, you begin to recognize harm and its intention to govern your life. You see, what this process does is it takes away the concealment factor. Stuff is brought into the light. And as things are brought into the light, they've either, either you've got to quickly darken it all again, but if you'll keep it there, something new is going to be born in this space in your life. You have the potential to replace the darkness with light, the lies with truth, the fear with love. Maybe uh, let me ask you a slightly different angle. Why are some people not prone to anger and chaos? I mean, there are people who maybe more or less, but there's, there's just some people who seem 
not prone to that. Any thoughts? They see that spirit a long way away, and they just won't partner with it. They're like, I see you. I'm, I, you're not coming here. And even if other people are walking in that space, they're not letting it in, and they're not letting it on. They recognize what they don't want to partner with it. They discern its lies. They recognize its false promises. And they quite simply are living in such a way that says, stay away. And so their lives, you know, not boring, but they're not chaotic. Why are some people not prone? I use this kind of leaning, and of course, any one of us, 1 Corinthians 12, I mean, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, be careful if you think you stand, that you don't fall. But why are some people not prone to adultery and immorality? They're just not partnering with that spirit. Why are some people not prone to getting conned? You know, last week I got an amazing, I got two email or, or messages. They were just great. One offered me 345,000 and the other offered me one point something million. And I just had to phone this lovely person on the other side of the message and they would quickly organize my reward. Um, I see you smiling. Like, that has never tempted me one moment ever. And when someone comes and offers quick rewards and quick rich and whatever, I have checked out so long ago. Like, it just doesn't register. And like when someone else is prone to that, I'm like, what are you thinking? Like, can't you? Can't you? Like, can't you see it? Because someone who's in the right spirit sees it straight away. They see manipulation. They see cruelty. They see greed. They recognize it. The lights are on and there it is in all its ugliness. And it can be dressed up in the sexiest, most seductive temptation. They are not going to go after it because they won't partner with it. Jesus said something really fascinating. Sorry, I've jumped ahead. So you can recognize the mindset that was previously hidden from you. The concealment is gone. And Jesus said this, John 14. I'm not going to say much more to you and you're thinking, yes, yes, yes. Take a hint, Craig. <laughs> the prince of the world is coming. Just notice this. He has no hold on me. He comes that the world will learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. That word, he's got no hold on me, literally just means he's got nothing on me. Like, he's got no hooks. He's got no axes. He's got no entry points. And in some ways, referring to my story last week, this is, this is my testimony. Like literally, this is my testimony. Having gone through the journey of forgiveness and repentance, and make no mistake, what happened to me was wrong. But its power is gone. 
it has no hold on you. Its authority, its access is denied. I now see that spirit. I know what he wants to do in me. And I simply refuse to play the game. I'm learning from Jesus. Jesus was safe because the devil had nothing on him, nothing in him, no access, no hold on me. Jesus never did anything wrong, and Jesus never refused to forgive. And so he could see. I mean, literally, he'd be in a space. People would come with these clever, conniving, manipulative questions. I know what that is. You don't have to be omniscient to, to know that. You just need to be spiritually discerning. And so learning to recognize the spirit in a space. What am I running with? What am I agreeing with? What am I aligning with? Right now in South Africa, there's a lot of hopelessness. And it takes a lot of work not to align with that despair and hopelessness, and grumpiness, and I know it because I sort of see it, and then every now and then I see, oh, it's in here. And then I have to go through a, you know, Hillary blesses Eskom, I have to forgive them. Um, <laughs> and I regularly nail them to the cross. No. <laughs> I nail to the cross my own junk. And despair and fear and doubt that wants to come into the space that I'm in. And so, when I learn that, and yes, the most important thing, I'm not always trying to read minds and whatever. I am most conscious of, and I'm, this, is, this may sound weird, sometimes someone can genuinely be in a good space, but it's triggering something I don't want to be in. And, and they're not being bad and, and whatever but I literally can't run with what they're going with. And so knowing what it does to my spirit is really important in order to accurately not just displace, but replace with that which is healthy, life-giving, and godly. And so knowing myself, you see, if you and the people around you have genuinely then repented and forgiven, if you've come to understand the lies and replace them with truth, and if both you and they are now living in the freedom of the Spirit of Jesus, then step number six, reconciliation and restitution will not only be safe, it will be amazing. Because you can tell each other's stories. You know what harm you caused, you know what they did, and you're both living in a different space. So this is what Psalm 37 captures, this opposite spirit. Paul looks at this greed and grasping and wickedness and evil, and he says, I'm choosing trust. Opposite spirit. Like everyone else is driven by fear, I'm choosing trust. I'm resting in God's goodness. I'm choosing goodness. Trust in the Lord and do good. I'm choosing delight. Everyone else is giving into fear. I'm delighting myself in the Lord. 
Notice how he's stewarding the opposite spirit to what's going on around. Everyone else is delighting in their riches, delighting in their power, delighting in their influence. I'm delighting in the Lord. Trust, goodness, delight. And then he's unafraid to surrender and commit to God. When the language of James 4, submit to God. And then he knows that in this space there's also, and he, and he repeats it several times in Psalm 37, even as I do that, I still have to be patient and learn to wait. This is not a magic formula to control other people. It's the steps we take to learn dominion over ourselves. God is not giving you a recipe to control others. He's giving you the freedom to let him lead. So the question is, as I want to learn to walk in a different spirit, is there anyone I need to forgive? You know, so often we've become conditioned by our own failures. We no longer see what opened that weakness in us. So consciously pausing, not just doing an internal cycle of reflection and blame, but who, who do I need to forgive? Thank you, Jesus, that you bring true forgiveness. And so I confess my shield of fear. My shield of fear. I confess my sword of anger. And I reject. And I break agreement. The sword of my pride. I declare that I no longer need them. They are a false promise. They are a false protection. If you'd like to pray with someone, please feel free to do that. And so, Father, thank you for our time together this morning. But thank you supremely for Jesus. The power of freedom and forgiveness. The power, literally, of being born to a new life, free from our past. Lord, thank you that this is your gift. We want to receive it fully on this Pentecost Sunday. Amen. Okay, you didn't think you are going to have a quick service on Pentecost, really. Huh? <laughs> okay, so you can run in the streets and tell people about Jesus, and then we'll see you tonight if you can make it. Thank you, everyone.